The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Welcome, everybody. Nice to see you here on Halloween. Um, if you came for the regular Tuesday evening sit, you know something else is going to happen tonight. We're fortunate to have Jyotipalo, Venerable Jyotipalo from Abayagiri Monastery in Northern California, not too far from Ukiah, Ukiah, about an hour and a half north of San Francisco, or is it more than that? Maybe about two and a half. Two and a half hours north of the San Francisco Bay Area. Jyotipalo uh, was out at a conference at St. John's. Maybe he'll speak a little bit about that uh, last few days. And so we were fortunate to have him come visit us and. Uh, he uh, joined us last night for the Buddhist Studies class, and he was here to speak about enlightened poetry and a number of other things. Uh, Jyoti Palo's been living at the monastery now for nine years, including a year in Thailand, and has been a, a bhikkhu, a, a Buddhist monk for the last, a fully ordained Buddhist monk for the last seven years. And uh, uh, some of you might know he did a peace walk with uh, another person beginning in New Orleans um, a year and a half ago, began about a year and a half ago, and got about a third of the way before getting ill. Um, so we got to see him shortly after that on his way up to Arrow River Monastery, uh, just outside of the Minnesota border. So it's really nice to have you again. This is uh, Venerable George Apollo's fourth time at the center. So thanks for coming. And I guess I should say, tonight is October 31st, 2006. Just in case you may need it. Well, for the recording. No, okay. We'll put this on our website, so we'd like to have the date on it. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa buddhang dhamang sankhang namasami. So when I was uh, talking with Mark you know, about coming, he requested that I uh, uh, possibly give a talk tonight. Uh, he asked if there would be a, a title or something that I would talk about. And, in our tradition, that's usually not something we do. We usually just you know, speak whatever's happening right in the moment. And uh, um, but I thought, yeah, actually, that's easy for me to do. Um, and so I thought I would maybe try to challenge myself. So I thought, and I wanted to have some fun too. So I thought uh, maybe like uh, I had about a month to prepare. So I thought about it'd be fun to do some reading of poetry and, and kind of getting to know the suttas a little bit better in that aspect. So I suggested. Uh, a night of enlightened poetry, and I had an idea that it would be kind of a trickster energy, not even realizing it was New Year's or uh, Halloween that <laughs> today fell on, and, uh, um, and so I, I prepared a couple of uh, poems that I found from the Chinese tradition, which I think are more Taoist poems than uh, than Buddhist. They're definitely influenced by Buddhism, and then I've taken some. Poems from the Trigata, which is the the uh, enlightened nuns at the time of the Buddha, and a few, I think two from the Teragata, the, the monks who were enlightened, 
uh, I have a couple of poems from the Buddha himself, and uh, one from my teacher, and then I've got a couple from that are actually songs, uh, but they're sort of poems um, from actually a Chan tradition in California. It's the City of Ten Thousand Buddhas, and their their teacher. It's interesting. They're very strict um, in their in their order, but they they play instruments and have a little bit more fun than the Theravada monks do. So. Uh, kind of trickster energy. I thought I'd play a few of those tonight as well. Um, but uh, a lot of the poems that I, I chose were uh, poetry isn't one of my sort of my favorite aspects of sort of the, the teachings of Theravada Buddhism or the suttas. But every once in a while I will read some poems or I'll hear some poems. And the ones I've selected are ones that actually have some sort of actually maybe some deep meaning to me. Like when I heard them, they it kind of gave me an insight to something or really helped my practice in some way. And I noticed when I was doing this that they all had to do with wilderness. Um, uh, poems of, well, you, you'll hear when I, when I start to read a few of them. And so I thought maybe before I, I got into the poems, I might talk a little bit about the, the, the aspect of wilderness. And uh, myself and uh, Ajahn Chandako was here earlier this, this summer, is that correct? And he's from this, was May. Uh, he's a, from the exact same Thai forest tradition, and he's done all of his training in Thailand. And then in December, Ajahn Punadamo is going to be here, who's got the monastery in, near Thunder Bay, Ontario. And uh, he's from the Thai forest tradition as well. And I'm going to read, after I do this, this first sutta reading, uh, a part of a journal that I, I wrote, and it, it describes a little bit of Ajahn Man, who is the, sort of the, the foremost teacher in, in the Thai forest tradition. His his sort of take on is an extreme, extreme case, but it's sort of how he used wilderness practice and sort of what the importance of it was. Um, but the Thai Force tradition, if you're not, if you don't know, it's it's, it's basically based in Thailand, and you, the monks do live in very and nuns as well live in very simple cabins, usually in the forest, and uh, it's a uh, you know a lot of the practices is really just being with nature and. And uh, you know, a lot of time spent outdoors and in dealing with, with you know, that kind of, of environment. Um, so what I'm going to read the first sutta, uh, just to make sure there is some dharma discussed tonight. I thought I was going to, I would read. It's called the Lesser Discourse on Emptiness. And I'm only going to read certain portions of it and give some commentary to it. And this comes from the Majjhima the Middle Link Discourses of the Buddha. And if you're interested, it's Sutta 121. And the translation I'm taking is from uh, Tanisarobiku, or you may know him as Tan Jeff or Ajahn Jeff at Wat Metta, a very, very skilled translator. I'm going to jump in the center here, and then I'm going to, you'll, you'll hear what I'll do. But, uh, so it starts off. Um, so Ananda's speaking, and he says, um, so I heard this face to face and I learned this from the Buddha and the Buddha said I now remain fully in a dwelling of emptiness and then Ananda asked did I hear that correctly learn it correctly attend to it correctly remember it correctly and the Buddha responds yes Ananda you heard that correctly learned it correctly attended it to it correctly remembered it correctly and now as before I remain fully in a dwelling of emptiness 
Just as this palace of Megara's mother is empty of elephants, cattles, and mares, empty of gold and silver, empty of assemblies of women and men, there is only this non-emptiness, the singleness based on the community of monks. Even so, Ananda, a monk, not attending to the perception of village, not attending to the perception of human beings, attends to the singleness based on the perception of wilderness. His mind takes pleasure and finds satisfaction, settles and indulges in the perception of wilderness. So this, this, first, uh, this first part here, uh, Megara's mother's uh, palace was is a seven-story seven palace even during the time of the Buddha. And she had faith in the Buddha, and she donated this palace for, to the Buddha as a, as a monastery, and the, and the Buddha actually accepted it. And so, you know, it was basically it was just full of, of practitioners, of, of monks, and so it didn't have all the worldly things that, you know, it would have had before. And so the Buddha is pointing out that, just like this room here, it's like we don't have elephants in here, we don't have, um, well, we do have children, screaming children outside, but we don't have them inside, so... You know, it's like this room is empty of elephants. It's empty of distractions of the world. You know, but what we do have is we have meditators and we have zafus. You know, we don't have furniture and things like that. So he's like pointing to it's like okay, we've come here and this, this is a this is a quieter place probably than where you came from. And it's good to pay attention to that. You know, pay attention to these things and and actually you know sort of cultivate that in your mind that there you know you might think your mind is really busy or this place is busy, but actually it's, it is more empty probably than where you came from. And so then he goes on in the sutta, and I won't read too much more of it, but I'll read the next, next paragraph. So he discerns that whatever disturbances that would exist based on the perception of village are not present. Whatever disturbances that would exist based on the perception of human beings are not present. There is only this modisum of disturbance, the singleness based on the perception of wilderness. He discerns that this mode of perception is empty of the perception of village. This mode of perception is empty of the perception of human beings. There is only this non-emptiness, the singleness based on the perception of wilderness. Thus he regards it, regards it as empty of whatever is not there, but whatever remains he discerns as present. There is this. And so this is Entry into emptiness accords with actuality, is undistorted in meaning, and is pure. So then what he's going to do is he keeps just sort of pointing back to, so whatever is there, so in this case, if you, know, if you let go of the attention to the palace, and then even you know, sort of attention to the monks, and he would just be in the wilderness. And, so this, uh, and then, like I like taking this perception, it's like right now, just imagining what it would be like, just in your own mind, of of practicing out in the wilderness if you were to go out and meditate. And if, well, just do that for just a few seconds. Just imagine yourself out in the outside meditating. Okay, now how many of you perceived that it was cold outside in that meditation? You know, or how many of you perceived that it was the summertime? It was like, did you perceive there might be mosquitoes around you or that you may have been on a backpacking trip and you forgot to bring any food and you're hungry now and <laughs> you're lost. So it's like we have this romantic vision of what it is to be in the forest, but there actually are disturbances when you're when you're in the forest. And so it's you know the Buddhist point to okay, so there you know maybe being in the forest actually would be more peaceful than here with cars outside or other people or trick or treaters, you know, coming by and screaming at 
but there probably would also be disturbances there. So then the next perception he goes to, um, you know, he just he, again, you know, they discern that you know whatever is there is you know is there, and that's the actuality, and that's reality, and that's pure, and that's actually there's an emptiness in that. So then the next perception is just the perception of birth. So then you stop perceiving you know the mosquitoes, the cold, or the uh, wild animals and things like that. And you're just perceiving the weight of your body on the earth. The, you know, the, is it has it been raining so the earth is wet, or is it is it cold or hot? And then so you just you narrowing that perception down, and then the world becomes empty of, of everything else. It becomes empty of the trees or the wind. And then once you get to that level, then you go to the infinite space. And my, my teacher, Ajahn Amaro, likes to point out, it's like, in this room, like, we really don't, most people don't perceive the empty space in a room. You know, we, we perceive the, the monk sitting up front or the person sitting next to you or the cushions, but we very rarely attend to empty space. You know, it's not to be walking to, oh, what a beautiful, you know, maybe you do, beautiful space you have. But, uh, so the next thing the Buddha has you look at is, is the infinite space. And then after he sort of goes through this with that, then it's the, when you look at space, there's something that's aware of that. So he's talking about the consciousness. So you start turning your attention sort of instead of externally, internally, to your own consciousness of that space. And then beyond consciousness, he's, he points to nothingness. I can't speak from experience when I get into these sort of states of concentration, but uh, then he turns to... Uh, say neither perception nor non-perception. So before there was a perception of nothingness, and now he's turning to the neither perception or non-perception of that. And then it gets into themeless concentration, and then from that it, it leads to release, and, uh, and this is full enlightenment. And so, so he discerns that this themeless concentration of awareness is fabricated and mentally fashioned and he discerns that whatever is fabricated and, men and mentally fashioned is inconstant and subject to cessation. For him, or her, this knowledge thus seen, the mind is released from the affluence of sensuality, the affluence of becoming, the affluence of ignorance. With release there is the knowledge released. Uh, he discerns that birth is ended, the holy life is fulfilled, the task is done. There is nothing further of this world. He discerns that whatever disturbances that would exist based on the affluence of sensuality, the affluence of becoming, the affluence of ignorance, uh, are not present. There is, is only the modism of disturbance that, that connected with the six sense spheres, dependent on this very body with life as its condition. He discerns that this mode of perception is empty of the affluence of sensuality, becoming, and ignorance, and there is just this non-emptiness that connected with the six sensory spheres dependent on this very body with life as its condition. Thus he regards it as empty of whatever is not there. Whatever remains, he discerns as present. There is this. And so this, his entry into emptiness, accords with actuality, is undistorted in meaning, pure, and superior and unsurpassed. And then Ananda's gratified and delighted in what the, what the Buddha said. And he actually says that anybody in the past who's entered into emptiness has done it through this method, and anybody who in the future will experience the same thing. And I just loved it when I first heard the sutta for the first time that, you know, it's like we might have an idea of what emptiness is, 
or peace or quiet, things like that, and uh, you know, and have it in some really exalted state of mind, or you know, just thinking it's a total oblivion. But the Buddha's pointing out here is that even once you become an arahant and you're actually of uh, emptiness, there's still the body is there, and all the disturbances that are associated with the body and the six sense spheres, they are still there. And the Buddha knew that, but it was still empty. I just find that I just I just love that image, and uh, this makes it uh, the practice more real for me. It's like we're not trying to get rid of anything; we're just trying to know in actuality what is there, and let go of what's not not necessary. So. I, I started, decided to start with this because it starts with that, the perception of the forest. And, and, uh, and, uh, um, and it's interesting to me that when I've been studying the, the suttas and, and uh, you know, I'm paying attention to the Thai forest tradition, the Thai monks um, spent a lot of time wandering in the forest and, and spending time in dangerous places. And you often hear you know, stories of of monks coming across, you know, uh, wild elephants, which are extremely dangerous, and, and tigers, and and uh, just the dangers of being out in the, in the wilderness. But when you're reading the, the Buddhist scriptures, you don't, I, I don't think I've heard any kind of stories of the Buddha, you know, counting tigers and things like this. And, and India during the time of the Buddha was, it was probably 95% of the, the area was uh, jungle and forest, and so he did actually live in these conditions. But it's interesting to me that he didn't write about them that much. And the most that I could find, there might be more. I'm not a poly scholar, but uh, or read all of the all of the canon yet. But uh, in the fourth sutta of the Majjhimikaya, uh, which is also from this collection here, and I'm not sure where I got this translation from, but um, if that sutta is called. Uh, fear and dread. And in it, the Buddha, the Buddha says that while he's living in the forest, before his enlightenment, the following thought occurred to him. While I dwelt here in the wild, when I dwelt here, a wild animal would come up to me, or a peacock would knock off a branch, or the wind would rustle the leaves. And I thought, why do I dwell always expecting fear and dread? What if I subdue that fear and dread while keeping the same posture that I am in, when it comes upon me, and not change postures until I have uh, subdued that fear and dread. The result was that tireless energy was aroused in me, and unremitting mindfulness was established. My body was tranquil and untroubled, my mind concentrated and unified. And then, when in this uh, sutra, then he goes through sort of a conventional phrases that shows that such concentration will lead all the way to enlightenment. He, he walks the way through that. So the Buddha is really pointing to this uh, going out into nature to, to sort of confront your um, sort of defilements. Or for him, it was this fear and dread. And you know, I just love this. You know, it's like a peacock knocks off a branch. You know, it's not like a wild tiger thing, but um, by Geary, it's it's a pretty pristine forest. And we talk about these carnivorous squirrels that live out in the forest. People go out, and you know, city people, and they come and live in a tent. You know. And, and they swear there's a mountain lion outside, you know, and they go out and it's just a squirrel or something like that. Or we have these little tiny lizards that run around. And, you, know, it's, you see something quite small, but the mind can create this huge, huge thing. And one time I was uh, in a tent. We had two, two tents. We had a large tent on the outside of it, and it was raining, and I was uh, in my tent, and, and 
I heard footsteps coming up to outside the tent. It was really large, and I was convinced it was a bear, and I know it was. And uh, um, and then I decided to sort of go. I was really afraid, and I decided to confront your fears, go out and, and see, see what's going on. And it was right outside the tent. I could hear breathing, even. And so I very quietly unzipped the zipper and walked out, and I had to sort of skirt around. The, the two entrances weren't quite lined up, and I had to go around. And just as I was ready to open the outside thing, I made a little bit of noise, and I heard what sounded like, you know, bear urinating. And I know about wild animals that oftentimes, before they, they attack or would flee, they, they will urinate. Just a, like a, an animal is ready to attack will do that. So I was like really scared, but I faced that fear, and I opened the flap up, and there was nothing there. Absolutely nothing. My mind had created the whole thing. It was just—I don't know what the, the sounds were, the steps, but the, the urinate was probably water on the tent, sort of you know, rolled off or something. But it's just amazing. So it's the same, same thing here. Just you know, the wind rustling some leaves, and you know, the wood is just—I'm just going to sit here until the fear leaves. You know, maybe it was a lion or a tiger or something. There's a great story of Ajahn Suchito. He was in uh, Kaliai National Park and. He actually had a tiger walk all the way around him and, and actually came up and, and, and nudged him. And he, he had determined he would not move or open his eyes. And, and uh, he could feel it breathing down his neck. But because he, he didn't move, a tiger, like a cat, you know, was always looking for some kind of movement. And because he didn't move, it didn't, didn't know what to do and just sort of walked around him and left. He never saw it because he never opened his eyes. But So, uh, yeah. Actually, I don't need to, to read the rest of this, kind of telling those two stories, but this is kind of a... Uh, I actually took this story from this woman, uh, Kamala Tijanovic, and she wrote a book, Forest Recollection, Wandering Monks in the 20th Century Thailand. I guess I will read it. And then she's explaining Ajahn Mun's sort of theory on why people would go out into the forest. And, and she said, Mun thought that um, this was important to go. And he said that in the, in the wild, students had to be ever cautious of lurking dangers which forced him to be constantly alert. He was defenseless except for his mind, which could fix itself upon, upon a theme of meditation or the recitation of the word Budo, which is a particular type of meditation that Thai forest teachers teach, which is also basically just breath meditation, but using a word to go with that. And then until, as Mun said, the mind would become absorbed in Dhamma, Mun's theory was that such, at such a critical moment, strong concentration would develop or deepen, and further wisdom or insight would occur. The battle between fear and dhamma, as Mun's biographer observed, is if the fear is defeated, the mind will be overwhelmed with by courage and enjoy profound inner peace. And then she relates a story about the Ajahn Chop, C-H-A-U-P, um, he was walking alone in the jungle where he knew tigers um, lived. Suddenly a tiger emerged on the trail walking towards him. Chop stopped, turned, and saw another tiger approaching from behind. Each tiger moved within two meters of him. They were the biggest tigers he had ever seen. Each of them looked as big as a horse, its head about 40 centimeters wide. Seeing no way out, Chop stood motionless, his feet frozen, thinking this was the end of him. At that critical moment, mindfulness came to his rescue. Uh, determined not to abandon mindfulness, even though he might be killed by the tigers, his mind withdrew from the tigers and dwelt within, 
and become and became one pointed. Intuitively, Chop knew that these tigers would never kill him, and in an instant, he was oblivious to the tigers, to his body, and to his standing position, and to everything around him. His mind drew it completely into deep concentration and remind, remained there for several hours. When he came out of his concentration, he found himself standing in the exact same spot, the lantern still in one hand, but the candle long since out. He lit another candle, but no tigers were to be seen. The forest was quiet. So, uh, Ajahn Man also did, knew that this type of practice wasn't for everybody, so he, he did not recommend it to all of the monks that lived with him. I mean, he did encourage people to be out in solitude, but he would, he would encourage some monks to go live in caves, or he would encourage actually people going out and living in open fields. I had that opportunity. I've never done that before, but I did that this summer at a neighbor's house. They were gone, and I got to go, go spend the, the night there. And it's, it's amazing. It's what the mind can do with just little sounds and, and creating things. So it's it's really good uh, meditation on like perception to see what the mind mind does. And it was interesting because I, I, I thought I'd start hearing something. I opened my eyes, and there was a bobcat uh, right on the, the edge of the forest, which is not a problem, you think, but... Um, so it's, it's an interesting meditation. Um, so I'm going to kind of change, change. Uh, well, actually, I've got written down here too at the top. That, I mean, another thing that uh, uh, Lumpur Samedo, he's the sort of the senior Western disciple and Ajahn Chah's disciple, and he has a monastery in England. Um, one thing he appreciates about living nature that I heard him say, which I always appreciate, is that when he's living out in the forest, he says there's there's like really very little judgment. Um, going on, it's like he doesn't look at a tree and think, "Ah, oh, the tree shouldn't be that way," or you know, it's like, "Why isn't it taller? Why isn't it fatter?" You know, or, and uh, and so in that sense, it, it also you can drop a lot of you know, negativity or, or your sort of judgment. So there's it's much more kind of a pure. Uh, it's easier maybe to get concentrated in that kind of state because there's not so many judgments or opinions going on. So I like I always contemplate that when I'm out in the forest too. Just how everything is as it is, and, there's, and I can allow it to be that way. And that actually allows me then, when I'm actually in community, uh, you know, when people are doing things that are unskillful or uh, just you know being too loud or something like that, I can just—they're just a tree. You know, they're, they're doing what they're doing because that's who they are. They've been conditioned to respond that way, just like a tree. And so it, it gives me much more uh, ability to let go. Yeah. So I'm going to switch now to doing uh, a few poems. And the first set that I'm going to do were, um, it's a Chinese poet uh, named uh, Li Po. And I took this from a book called Endless River. And the translator was uh, Samil, S-A-M-I-L-L. And I think this is about 700 to 770 uh, the B.C. Um, and I believe that he was a, a, probably a Taoist writer and had some influence from, from Buddhism. And so I just, the, the first one, and this, these just, when I, you'll, you'll understand if you when I read it, but the first one is, I make my home in the mountains. So, you ask why I live alone in the mountain forest, and I smile and I'm silent until even my soul grows quiet. It lives in the other world, one that lies beyond men. Peach trees blossom, 
water continues to flow. Then the next one is called Zazen on Qingtang Mountain. The birds have vanished down the sky. Now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain and I, until only the mountain remains. So I just, I just like these you know, images of being out, out in nature, and then especially this last one. We sit together, the mountain and I, until only the mountain remains. It's just, it wasn't what I was expecting to read. <laughs> Just like that image. So the next uh, next three poems were from a book called Cold Mountain, 100 poems by the Tang poet uh, Han San, and uh, Burton Watson is the translator. And I th- he's definitely was a Taoist, and it sounds like he was very much a, a trickster. You know, it's like. Of all the poems, I don't know. I didn't really resonate with very many of his poems there. He was very much a trickster. And uh, I guess these poems were found sort of like written on rocks or uh, on leaves and stuff out in the forest. And uh, some official in the area, he'd have found them or people had given them to him and, and collected these poems. Um, but, uh, so I'll just read. I'm not reading these in the order that they were found in the book, but. So, the first one is, My mind is like the autumn moon, shining clean and clear in the green pool. No, that's not a good explanation. Tell me, how shall I explain it? And uh, in a lot of the Buddhist poems, uh, especially in the the, uh, Pali Canon, the Trigata and the Teragata, the, the poems are often what we call the lion's roar. So it's a, once somebody has realized final liberation, it's, sometimes the poems are their expression of, of their understanding of the Dhamma, or um, oftentimes, like somebody actually might not be like that well respected in the community, and other you know community members are always pointing out their faults and making fun of them. And sometimes their poems are sort of a warning to the other community members that they actually are enlightened now, and it's actually very bad karma to to uh, criticize them, so they're kind of warnings. So a couple of these last two poems are, they feel like these are much more of his, his lines roar, and, uh, uh, and I, like, I like the imagery. So, the clear water sparkles like crystal. You can see through it easily, right to the bottom. My mind is free from every thought. Nothing in the myriad realm can move it. Since it cannot be wantonly roused, forever and forever it will stay unchanged. When you have learned to know in this way, you will know there is no inside or out. And he's talking about the duality there. And the last one. In my house there is a cave, and in the cave is nothing at all. Pure and wonderfully, pure and wonderfully empty, resplendent with a light like the sun. And so this cave is, is his own mind. And that's only halfway through the poem, so we'll start from the beginning. In my house there is a cave, and in the cave is nothing at all, pure and wonderfully empty, resplendent, with a light like the sun. A meal of greens will do for this old body. A ragged coat will cover this phantom form. 
Let a thousand saints appear before me. I have the Buddha of heavenly truth. And then, I think the main reason I was thinking about doing doing poetry was I was, um, at the time, I think I had actually already picked up and was starting to read uh, Susan Murcott's book, uh, The First Buddhist Women. And in the, so this is the Tarikata. And in the process of reading these, I actually went back and there's, you can usually find many, many different translations. And um, Ajahn Jeff, who I did the first reading from the suttas, he has some very good translations. And it's, it's really amazing if you go and, and compare different translators to what they write. It's, sometimes you think they're completely different poems. But, and I was very impressed with Susan's uh, translations, not only sort of in, in getting a, just the way they read, but it also seems like she has some sort of knowledge you know, about meditation. And uh, so these, these, to me, speak from a, a perspective of being a monk and actually living in community when I read these. They, they had a much more deeper meaning to me in terms of, of you know, reading these and actually feeling like it was a monastic who wrote them. Um, so this first one, um, I didn't write the name of the, the nun down, but I think it's Patakara. And she was the foremost Buddhist disciple in, in discipline. And there's a, uh, I wouldn't say a great story, but a very well-known story with her that she, uh, um, I think she, her parents were trying to arrange a marriage for her and she didn't want to do that. And so she married, like a, uh, I think it was a servant in the family. And then, of course, her husband didn't want to be you know, with the parents because he was afraid that they would try to break up the marriage. And so they, they left the village that they were from. And then um, Patakara was about ready to give birth and she wanted to go back to her parents' house to, to help with, the, help with the, the birth. And her husband kept putting it off because he didn't want to go back. And so um, Patakara kind of snuck out of the house and got about halfway to her parents' house and, and gave birth. And the husband caught up and they, they came back. And then, uh, and this happened the second time with the second child, and she left. And then the husband caught up to him, and then a, a storm, a very violent storm, erupted before they could sort of go back. And then Patakara gave birth that night, and uh, her husband went out to go uh, try to find some shelter to cut down some some branches and get some leaves to create shelter. And he got bitten by a poisonous snake and died. And then. So she woke up in the morning not knowing what had happened and found her husband and was, you know, grief-struck by this. And then because of the storm, there had been, the rivers were at flood stage. And so she comes to this river and she can't, she's not, she's just giving birth and being out in the, the night in the storm. She's not strong enough to walk across the stream with both of her children. So she leaves the oldest child on the one bank and she carries the child across and sets it down. And then she goes back to get the other child in a hawk. Um, comes and takes the baby, and so she panics and is freaking, you know, screaming. And the young, the oldest child is thinking that mother's calling for it to come out into the river. So the child comes out and gets swept away. So she immediately loses her entire family, and then um, so she's, you know, really, really in bad shape at this point. And then to make things worse, she gets into the, the town that her parents are at, and the storm had uh, caused a fire to, to, to happen in her house, and her parents died that night in, in the storm. And so she, she goes insane, and she wanders in the, in the streets. I think it's a very large city. 
Vancouver, which mm-hmm. and uh, but she's just sort of wandering and and, uh, uh, and I think it's, it's quite a while. And then she just happens to sort of enter into uh, a monastery where the Buddha's teaching. And then the Buddha, um, you know, sees her coming. And everybody else is trying to keep her away from the Buddha because she's it's been years, you know, like a year or two that she's been uh, insane and, and wandering, so she's naked and doesn't have any clothes or anything like this, so they're just trying to keep away from the Buddha, and the Buddha sees her, and, and he, I think he just says something like, very something simple, like, be aware, and he, he's Patikara, be aware, he gives him psychic powers, he knew her name, and it brings her to, and then she's, you know, when someone throws her a jacket or a cloak, and she puts it on, and, and then very quickly, she, um, because of her her suffering, and then he gives her a teaching, and she becomes enlightened. And then she was very uh, um, sought after as a, as a nun, because um, just because of the suffering she had gone through, many women felt really attracted to her that, that she could, you know, could help them with the, the sufferings that they were going through. So this is her poem, and uh, um, so when they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth. When they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Can anybody relate to that? Bathing my feet, I watch the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrate my mind the way you train a good horse. When I look at a Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was free. And for me as a monastic, this, uh, um, you know, for for one thing, I think it was was 25 years that she trained before this, this moment happened. And so she says, you know, I've done everything right, and I followed my teacher. So it's like she she has put forth effort, and she's you know created the conditions where that uh, uh, you know that she will have this this moment this moment of realization. And then and to me that really shows because she's she's been outside meditating, probably doing walking meditation in the evening, and then she's going to go back into her cabin. So what does she do? She bathes her feet. That's a monastic rule that you. You do not go into your cabin with dirty feet, and you don't go in with wet feet. And so, if she's bathing her feet, and then, you know, she's been meditating all afternoon or you know in the evening, and she's she's spilling the the, the water, and she's on this, this little hills. The commentary says, and and she says they say she spills um, tips over three three bowlfuls, and like the first one sort of goes down, and it only goes down a couple of feet, and then if you can, then the, the water sort of going down the edge of the hill. And then the water just gets absorbed into the earth. So it's so you can, if you've ever seen that happen, there's just this stream that just gets sucked in. And she does the second, and it goes a little bit further, and then it gets sucked in. And she does the third one, it goes pretty much all the way down, and it gets sucked in. So I just like this this image of absorption, you know, just getting you know, really um, being pulled in. And then also she notices that the, you know, it's like each time she puts forth effort, she, maybe she goes a little bit further into the meditation and, and gets absorbed further. Or just that you know there are different different stages for different people. That you know some people might get the training very quickly, and some people it takes a little bit longer, and some it takes much longer. So it's just it's a natural law. So it's like yeah, it has taken 25 years, and 
and you know, why haven't I found peace? But she's still putting forth the effort. It's not, I haven't found it, so I'm going to give up. The Buddha must be wrong. But she, she keeps practicing. And then, then when she goes into her cell, and she, I check the bed, and there's a monastic rule that whenever you sit down, on a, especially in India, when you sit down on a cushion, you're supposed to pick up the cushion and make sure there's no living beings under there. It's very, it would not uncommon to come into your cabin and there could be a snake is actually seeking warmth underneath the cushion you've been sitting on. So it's like you, you, she's very circumspect here. She's very, very careful about her surroundings and the creatures around her. So she's checking the bed before she sits on it. And then, um, I'm not exactly sure about the needle, but I remember Ajahn Siddhanto telling me that in Thailand, it's like you take a needle and you push the, the needle, you push the wax down to the needle, and I think it it'll, it makes the, the, the wick last a little bit longer because then when it comes back up, it's got the, got the uh, um, wax on it. Instead of blowing it out, then it still kind of burns down a little bit more. So it's like she's being respectful of some of the property, you know, taking care of things. And then, and then, I've actually had the experience of having a candle, you know, meditating in my cabin at night, and and then the candle actually, you know, burns out. It actually goes out while in meditation. And when that happened to me one time, it was just, it was just like the opposite of an explosion. It was like an implosion in my mind. Because even though the eyes were closed, it was a dark room. But when that light went out, it was just like an explosion. And so. That wasn't enlightenment for me, but, uh, <laughs> but so when, you know, when the light went out, her mind was freed. I could actually get that from the experience. I, I guess I had that experience before I ever read this poem, and then when I read, like, oh, that makes so much sense. So I just love I, this particular poem in general. I just really love just because of the, the, my understanding of monasticism and the training and, and the care that goes into it. Another poem that. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's a, a bhikkhuni named Dantika. So, as I left my daytime resting place on Vulture's Peak, I saw an elephant come up on the riverbank after its bath. A man took a hook and said to the elephant, Give me your foot. The elephant stretched, it, stretched out its foot, and the man mounted. Seeing what was wild before, gone tame under human hands, I went into the forest and concentrated my mind. So the first time I, I read this poem, as I was reading it, I was imagining her, you see that first line, uh, as I left my daytime resting place on Vulture's Peak, I saw an elephant come up on the riverbank after its bath. And I was assuming she was, you know, the time of India, that was still a wild. Um, actually, that's near a... I think Rajagaha is the city where Vulture Peak is, but I just had this image that it was a, a wild jungle, and this was a wild elephant. She was like, oh, wow, look, you know, an elephant coming up onto the riverbank. And then all of a sudden, a man comes up with a hook and says, you know, give me your foot. And then, you know, the man mounts this, this elephant, which just momentary before, in her mind, had been a wild elephant. And all of a sudden, now this man you know, comes and takes a hook and and enters it, and so she says, seeing what was wild before, gone tame under human hands, which, when I read that, I was like, that's the exact perception I have when I read that. And, you know, then she went into the forest and, and entered concentration. So it's like, um, you know, she saw that, that, you know, something as wild maybe as her own mind or you know, my own mind, that there are ways of training that she, that she could take 
and you know turn something like a wild elephant into a tame elephant, but you could do the same with your own mind. So I was dumbfounded when I read that poem. Just felt it. Um, the next poem I'll read is a, a nun by the name of Kala. And so this is Kala speaking. I, a nun, trained and self-composed. I, a nun, trained and self-composed, established mindfulness, entered peace like an arrow. The elements of body and mind grew still. Happiness came. And then Mara, the tempter, the sort of equivalent of Satan in the Buddhist scriptures, approaches and says, Who told you to shave your head? You look like a renunciate to me. Why do you practice this nonsense? And the call answers, All those outside the way depend on views. They don't know the Dhamma. They have no real understanding. But in the Sakyan clan, the unrivaled Buddha was born. He taught me the way the complete overcoming of views, pain, the cause of pain, the end of pain, and the great eightfold way that stills all pain. When I heard his words, I rejoiced. There's a, there's a whole section of, of poems of where Mara comes in and uh, tries to disturb people's meditations. And, and so there's another one in very similar light. And this is Bajira. So Amara speaks first and says, who, puts this who put this living being together? Where is the maker? Where does this being come from? Where will it end? I think these are what the Buddha called the thicket of views. It's sort of anything to sort of entangle the meditators, get, get any kind of thought going to keep you from concentrating. So who put this living being together? Where is the maker? Where does this being come from? Where will it end? And then Ajira responds, What's this being you go on about? That's your delusion. We are nothing but the Khandas. There is no being to be found here. It's like this. A certain combination of parts is called by the name chariot. So with the, so with the Khandas, the elements of mind and body. It's a common usage to say a being. It is suffering that exists suffering that endures, suffering that disappears. Nothing but suffering exists, nothing but suffering comes to an end. Then Mara, death himself, thought, Ajira knows me, sad and dejected, he vanished. There's often in the suttas where, where Mara comes and tempts the Buddha. Um, afterwards he gets dejected and he goes and sits on a rock and takes a stick and kind of pushes it in the earth and kind of sulks. <laughs> There's one of my favorite images is after the Buddha's tried, uh, the Buddha's sort of seen Mara and, and defeated him, the Buddha's sulking there, and then Mara's daughters come by and see Mara sulking there and they ask what happened. And so they go, Oh, well, we'll go attempt the Buddha again. You know, they tried once before, and so they go and, of course, have the same results, and they come back. And, and, uh, and Mara looks at it and says, That was pathetic. That was like throwing lily stones, uh, lily, lily stems at a stone. <laughs> So there's some, there's a lot of humor in the Pali canon if you if you know how to how to, to read Pali here and a lot of it does get translated but some of it doesn't. How are we doing for time? Okay, so I thought I'd uh, 
Why don't I change modes completely and go into wanting to play a couple of songs? Um, and then I'm going to end, remind me at the end, I'll end with the, um, some poems from the Buddha. So, uh, um, just to save, I'll decide what happens here in just a second. This is a Halloween special. The uh, Abayagiri in Northern California, we have a very close relationship with the uh, City of 10,000 Buddhas. The, the, the master there was a Master Wa. And it's really interesting. The, the Thai forest tradition is probably one of the most austere, kind of orthodox uh, traditions you can find. And, and in the Chinese tradition, the Cham tradition, I think the City of 10,000 Buddhas is probably one of the most... Yeah, uh, austere and to, uh, strict orders you can find as well. And uh, but Master Wa was really innovative as well, and was always trying to find ways to bring people into the Dhamma. And so one of the songs, or one or two of them, I'll be playing are from a nun back in late 1960s, early 1970s. Oops. Um, and. So in their tradition, they, they actually do use instruments and things like that. And the first monk that I'll, I'll play is the Reverend Hung Shur. He's a very good good friend of mine. And it's probably not even accurate to say friend, because I see him as a teacher and, and a, a very wonderful monk. And he was a classical guitarist, trained as a classical guitarist as a, as a lay person. And then when he became a monk, he set his instruments aside for like 20, 25 years and, and was just recently kind of exploring ways to help bring people youth kind of and westerners into, into the Dhamma because it's their tradition it's right now it's really attracting mainly Chinese and so he's looking for some ways and he's and he picked up his guitar and started playing and then he actually remembered that in China there's a, there's a very strong tradition of Dharma music and, and so he's trying to he's actually coming out with an album I think very 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 quickly a CD and uh, this song was originally going to be on it, but he decided not to do it at the last minute. But uh, there's a five-minute or like a two or three-minute introduction to the song, and then the song itself. And, uh, um, and I'm playing this one because it's, you know, like, I think part of why I'm kind of wanting to play some of this music is the, you know, I think that in the in the Dharma that um, just uh, you know, like reading some of the poems and things like that. It's, I think that you know monasticism is a very valid you know training path and things like that. But I also think that you know, Dhamma would be good if there was more. It was expressed in other ways besides sort of psychological books and the shelves and stuff like that. There's not a whole lot of music or joy. It seems like I think being with the Christian monks, you know, like that really kind of confuses them. They 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 see Buddhism as very cold and and not much life to it. You know, we don't do a whole lot of outreach and building hospitals and and there's not much music and things like that. So it does exist, but it's not emphasized. Um, and this is actually, in a couple, all these songs too, they're, they're kind of interesting. Like they, they talk about decomposing bodies or, you know, they, they take real, real subjects. And this one here is about the, uh, the Buddha's um, going out and seeing the four heavenly messengers. So there's, there's an introduction here. And this is Reverend Hung Chir speaking. The Buddha was living in a pleasure garden. His father was afraid that the first sight of impermanence would wake him up and he wouldn't become king of India. 
So he tried his best to keep him in the delusion that an SUV was his proper birthright, you know, or stable of elephants at that time, I guess. So, and that uh, everything was meant to be fresh and new always. So as, uh, as our story goes, and thank goodness, the Buddha went down to the city gates and uh, on three consecutive days saw old age, sickness, and death, and it stopped his work. It was a shocker. And then on the fourth day, he met a monk. He met a cultivator. Now, there was no Buddhism in the world at that time, right? The Buddha was not yet the Buddha. But he saw a cultivator. He saw a Vipassana meditator, someone who made, uh, perhaps, someone who made his, uh, made practice part of his day. And again, the Buddha stopped to consider that this might be the doorway out of what he had just seen, which is the inevitable end of a human life, which is death. So that sight of the monk giving him a possibility of uh, transcending birth and death propelled him out of the palace. So this song is the night before he left, the, the moment before he left. He's leaning over the shoulder of his wife saying goodbye. She's asleep, and he's made up his mind, and he's on his way, and uh, he's telling her his heart before he takes the step that turned him into the Buddha.
the man who walked in robes with bowl in hand. His case looked neither left nor right. His brow was clear, his eyes were bright. I asked him what he did all day. He said, I cultivate the way. I watch my mind, I watch my breath, and in the end, it's life and death. Your shoulder up. I couldn't love you more. Your shoulder up. That's why I'm walking out the door. Some will say that I'm a fool, and some will say that I'm too cruel. This is the best thing I can do, and when I get free, I'll come back for you. Yet look at where I've been, shoulder up, I'm on the track to get free. different song, but I see it's getting kind of late, so um, this next song that I'm going to play, though, I was hoping to play this, another, it's by, uh, her name is Dikuni Hung Yin, and uh, she has, I think, since disrobed, and, uh, uh, but this song, I think it's called, it's called Might As Well Cultivate, is the name of the song, and, uh, uh, it was inspired by Master Wa. Her teacher was uh, um, teaching a retreat somewhere, and then I'm not sure if there was like a group of young young people had come and were part of the retreat. And this young man, very young boy, I think probably like seven or eight years old, came up and asked to take the refuges from Master Wa. And at the uh, um, at the end of he, before he gave him the refuges, he asked him why he wanted to you know, take take the refuges and the the young man said um, that he wanted to become a Buddha. And Master Wall said, well, why do you want to become a Buddha? And his response was, there's nothing else to do. And so uh, and I heard uh, uh, this story here. Um, uh, who did I say was, was telling that? The, one of the teachers at IMS, um, oh, uh, my Ocean Kelly told us when I was on retreat or when I was on staff about 10 years ago, there was this, uh, has anybody here ever heard of the Darwin Awards? Yeah, it's these awards that they, they give out, you know, um, to people who have uh, done something incredibly stupid and actually died as a consequence of their actions. And then it's sort of the, it's an award so that they didn't pass their genes on to, to anybody else. And, this man, uh, Larry Walters, received an honorable mention because of what he did, but he actually lived, so they, they couldn't give him the full award. But uh, I'll just give you the summary of it. But what he um, he retired from the he probably joined at a, at a very young age the Air Force, and he always wanted to fly, but he couldn't because his eyesight wasn't good enough, and so he retired at probably the age of like 38 and was sitting out and um, 
in, in noticing all the jets flying by, and he really wanted to fly. So he got this idea to buy these weather balloons from the Army-Navy surplus store and, atta- and attach them to a lawn chair. And he had the idea that he would sever the cord, and he float up about 30 or 40 feet above his yard and had a, a six-pack of beer and some sandwiches and a BB gun. He was going to shoot the weather balloons down when he wanted to, wanted to go down. So he you know, got all suited up, and his friends cut the cord for him. And he didn't shoot up 100 feet. He didn't shoot up 1,000 feet. He shot up 16,000 feet and leveled off. And uh, at this point, he was too afraid to shoot the weather balloons because he was 16,000 feet up in the air. And he was up there for 14 hours, and he, he flew through the... Uh, LAX airport. He's in Los Angeles. He's through, through the airport space, and uh, the uh, Delta and American Airlines pilots were, you know, calling down, saying, "You're not going to believe this. There's a, a man up here in a, in a lawn chair with a gun." You know. uh, um, but he, he finally uh, he was probably getting freezing cold and scared, so he decided he needed to risk shooting some of the balloons because he could probably see the ocean was coming, and so he. he, he Finally, shot up through the balloons and landed. Didn't they? Uh, the LAPD arrested him for violating LAX air, airspace. But then, as they were arresting him, a reporter came and uh, let me see if I can find where that is. Uh, but they asked, him, well, they sort of said, to, you know, uh, you know, why did you do it? And he said, you know, the man's got to do something. <laughs> so, same, same sort of response. But uh, here's a. Uh, this is, this is Hong Yen's um, inspiration from the, the young boy who said there's, there's nothing else to do. Completely different style here. You'll find that. Mark's heard it. Mark's heard it. 
pretty much keeps going. One more. Should I do... You haven't heard the one, Great is the Joy. It's more of an Elton John kind of piece. It's very, very beautiful, though. And the other one, I would think, you know, Betsy Rose's. Um, you choose, you choose. They're both great. Okay, well. I don't know which one to do. Do you want to hear Elton John or do you want to hear humor? <laughs> humor, okay, I heard humor first. This will take me a little bit while to oops, get to it. Okay, this this I can actually give you kind of the introduction to to the song. Um, trick or treat um, was uh, Reverend Hung Sure. This is a woman named Betsy Rose, who uh, I guess is a quite a, a well-known uh, musician in the, the Bay Area. And Alan Tsunaki, who was a kind of music, was I telling you? He did folk music. There's some really, really famous magazine about folk music from the 60s all the way to present that he's actually the editor of. And uh, somebody, I think it was the three of them, they did a uh, Dharma music. And these three are completely... Um, and then... And so she, uh, what she does is she works for the Spirit Rock uh, family program, and she's you know a very good musician. And so what she's doing is she she likes to take say um, instead of taking, but she takes a melody uh, or existing well-known melodies and then writes Dharma music to them, and you'll you'll get it quite quickly which which one this is. There's a way to live with others. Thank you. 
be awake except for my behind. Oh, the joys of contemplation and mindful concentration are never wrong or naughty. It's the continental freedom knowing nothing else I need and I only have the money. There is so much less confusion and so much that's illusion. It's hard to understand you. But I know I'll be clearer and my mind will be a mirror if I only can explain ya. I will penetrate the mysteries. I won't get lost in histories or dwell upon manana. I'll absorb all the teachings for enlightenment. many a refuge, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines, people threatened with danger. That's not the secure refuge, not the supreme refuge. That's not the refuge which, having gone with, you gain release from all suffering and stress. But when, having gone to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha for refuge, you see with right discernment the Four Noble Truths. Stress, the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to the stilling of stress. That's the secure refuge. That, the supreme refuge, that is the refuge. Having gone to it, you gain release from all suffering and stress. So that's Dhammapada 188 to 192, and that's by Tanjav. And then Dhammapada 153. Through the rounds of many births I roamed, without reward, without rest, seeking the house builder, 
painful as birth again and again. House builder, you've been seen. You will not build a house again. All your rafters broken, the ridgepole destroyed. Gone to the unformed, the mind has come to the end of craving. Now, the, the music that I played before, I can blame on my teacher, Ajahn Amaro, because he, he's always playing Hungian songs whenever we take really long uh, trips somewhere. And uh, this next, this last poem I'm going to read is called The Arhant. And uh, Ajahn Amaro said he was on retreat. He had made a vow to not write any poems or anything, because he normally would kind of do that. And he's got a very musical mind and stuff. But he said this one just popped into his head, and he had to write it down. So he didn't write it. It was... It was it just came and so it's based on the, the previous poem so the lone remaining wall of a long since fallen house no more inside no more outside no more trespass for the mouse where a doorway and five windows allow the wind to pass unobstructed as they billow through the woods across the grass there the sun and moon and starshine illuminate the scene for all the folk that pass it by when wandering in the green. I, wondering, I wonder who the person was who built this mighty house that's now a bramble garden and a home for grub and louse. A broken ridge and rafters smashed lay skewn across the floor, all that stands quite ownerless, five windows and a door. Question? And I'll be here around if anybody has questions you want to ask later. Thank you so much, Venerable Joshi Paolo. It's been really great having you around the last few days. Hopefully, it won't be your last visit. I hope not. <laughs> It's really great for us to sort of track your monastic life, you know, if you can get here every year, one way or another, that would be great. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.